Well, good evening. Today we are continuing in our series of studies in the book of Proverbs. You can turn to Proverbs chapter 30. We'll be in chapter 30 this evening. Chapters 30 and 31 are sort of special Proverbs. They're all the way at the end of the book because they are different than the other chapters. The other chapters, in large part, are collections of Proverbs by Solomon and some others grouped together with a specific theme. Now, these are more like the Psalms in that they're written by an individual author, and they have a theme, but they also are written with sort of a beginning and an end and with sections, and so they're, they're really a little bit different than some of the other Proverbs we've looked at, which are really more of a collection. So you might think of this as a classic album versus a playlist, if you guys listen to music. But here you have the sayings of Agur, the son of Jacob, in chapter 30. There are 33 verses. We will go through them this evening. Uh, As we are in this chapter, I think you'll find that there is much encouragement for each of us to not only grow closer to the Lord, but to live our lives in a way that uh, brings blessing, and especially as we obey God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We look to you this evening for you to speak to our hearts give us wisdom and understanding, guidance, for we surely need that in these dark days, wisdom to be able to discern between what's good and what's evil, the knowledge to know what is best for our lives, and only you can give us that understanding. So we look to you. This evening we ask that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start by looking at the first six verses. Again, the oracle of Agur, the son of Jacob, that is the uh, author of the entire chapter, and it starts with, and by by the way, let me also say, we don't really know who this individual is. It may be a pseudonym, it may be a name for someone else, but regardless, the name simply tells us that this person was a person and wrote these things as God gave them understanding. The word oracle is a little uncertain, but it seems to be a word from God, something that God gave this man to share with us. And so we read in verses 1 through, we'll start with 1 through 6. The sayings of Agur, son of Jacob, an oracle, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel, and to Akal, I am the most ignorant of men. I do not have a man's understanding. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One, who has gone up to heaven and come down who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands, who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak, who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. What an interesting open. I will say this, and now he speaks of his ignorance, but... It's not as if he's saying he doesn't know anything. What he's talking about when he talks about being the most ignorant of men, it's that he doesn't really understand the wisdom of God. He doesn't understand the things of God. Now, I think you guys know this. The more you know, the older you get, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know anything. You know, when you're young, you know everything. You think you do, right? Uh, I can remember when I first started playing music. I learned to read music, I learned to write music, I learned to do a lot of that. And early on you think, oh, I got this thing. And then you go and you hear a great guitar player and you think, I don't know anything. 
Many times we would joke, you know, I'm going home to burn my guitar after we would go to see some great artist. You think you know something, you think you, you really understand something, but uh, you really have only scratched the surface of life when you're young. And even when you're older, you have the wisdom generally to know you don't have the wisdom of God. You don't really have a good understanding. This is a good place to be, for there is simply nothing more unattractive than the person who thinks they know everything. The person who does not have humility. And so this section teaches us about the humility and the fear of the Lord. One of the Proverbs we studied a few weeks ago, uh, it's 27.2, Proverbs 27.2, has been coming up a few times as of late in my life. You know, I often say, well, may one of these verses, may the Lord write it on your heart and speak to you. You know, maybe not all the verses, maybe just one, but this is the one that keeps coming up. I, I've shared it a few times. It's been contextual. It's in 27 too. It says, let another praise you and not your own mouth. Someone else and not your own lips. There are too many people out there that really, they really just can't wait to tell you how wonderful they are. I was at the Costco a couple of years ago. I think the guy still works there, but it was a couple of years ago, and I looked at the badge. You know Costco workers, they have a badge that says their name? This guy's name said Mr. Wonderful. <laughs> Something tells me that wasn't his real name. It's interesting when you consider the fact that there are some people out there that really just will go out of their way to let you know how great they are. Anyone enjoy a conversation like that? Because I don't. I wouldn't want to be guilty of speaking that way, but I certainly don't enjoy hearing others speak that way. There's a need for humility and reverence for God in our lives, and I'm sad to say you're probably not going to even begin to understand it until you're well into your 30s or 40s. Uh, In your 20s, you just don't have the life experience to appreciate what you don't know yet. Maybe some others, some, some rare individuals have grown enough and lived enough that they've had enough life behind them that they come to this place. But for the most part, it isn't until you get a little bit older that you look around and you realize, I really don't know anything. But there is a beauty in the character of an individual who understands his place before God and isn't looking to strive with others to achieve some superiority. They generally say that a person with a superiority complex is someone who doesn't feel very good about themselves right? It's someone who really, truly doesn't feel good about themselves. It's like the extreme of an inferiority complex. But here he saw himself as broken and needy before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, that is the kind of person that experiences God, the person that knows who they are and knows who they're not. The two great uh, revelations, the two great revelations are, I think, the the glory of God, the the, the wisdom of God, the might of God, the worthiness of God, but then you have the unworthiness of us. That second revelation, when you've seen God or experienced God in all of his glory, just to realize, I don't even belong in his presence. This man saw God as almighty and sovereign over his creation. He said it this way in verse 4. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? And who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know. The Son of God ascended. The Son of God descended. And surely the writer had no clue that when he was saying these words that they would apply many years later to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But they do. 
They do. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Jesus Christ, of course. Who has gathered up the wind in the hollow of his hands? Of course, it's God. Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? He knew that that was God. But then he goes on to say, what is his name in the name of his son? Tell me if you know. And we can say that, right? His name is Jesus. Or he is God the Father, Yahweh, Jehovah. But his son's name is Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. And it's the Son of God that ascended and descended. I think about what Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 13. He says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And so the answer to that question is actually given by Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 3. Another thing to keep in mind is Paul's teaching on the ascension, but also the descension of Christ into Sheol, the place of the dead, when he died. He descended into Hades, if you will, for three days, three nights, and then he ascended and ultimately ascended into heaven. So the answer to that question is given to us by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 9 when it says, what does he ascend mean except that he also descended to the lowest earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So we know the answer. Aren't we fortunate that we can answer the writer's question? We know his name. We know his son's name. His name is Yahweh. His name is I Am, which we believe to be either Yahweh or Jehovah. But we know his son's name. His son's name is Yeshua or Jesus Jesus Christ, the Savior of mankind. He also looked, the writer did, he looked at God as his protector. He saw God as his protector, and he saw his word as perfect in every way. Look at verse 5. Every word of God is flawless. Amen? I think it's Psalm 19 or Psalm 119. Uh, the word of God, the word of the Lord is, is pure. It, the idea that God's word is pure, it's flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. You can trust God. God protects us. And his word is perfect. So the implication, living according to his word, shields you because you take refuge in him. You worried about things in today's world? Trust in God. You worried about where you would find refuge in a crisis? You can know this. His word is flawless. You can trust in him. His word tells us to trust in him. And then we're told not to add anything to his words, or he'll rebuke you and prove you a liar. Now, there are many ways you can add to the words of God or the word of God. You can say something uh, that you think God said and God didn't say it. Certainly, you can do that. Or you can misinterpret the scripture and apply the scripture incorrectly. But in either case, you're, you're adding to the word of God. This man respected God's word as the ultimate authority in his life. And you don't want to be guilty of what many in the world do today. They quote portions of the word, and the portions of the word that they don't like, they ignore. And they live according to a set of morals that are amoral. They are not moral at all, immoral. And they will never go to the scriptures that support the point of view that God gives us in his word, they always go to the ones that believe, they believe, support their point of view. Like, for example, God is love. It's true, God is love. But they'll take that, and the way they add to that is really by taking away. They, they don't talk about the fact that God is truth. They, they don't talk about sin, but they just say God is love. And so if God is love, then everything's permissible, right? Because God loves us. 
That's adding to the word of God and taking away from it at the same time. You're suggesting something that isn't true because you don't know or teach the whole word of God. You're on dangerous thin ice. And we see this all the time. It sounds so nice, doesn't it? God is love. And it's interesting, the people that will say that, they, they, they want to murder and destroy lives. But God is love. They want to mutilate and butcher people's bodies, but God is love. They want people in unhealthy, sinful relationships that will land them in hell, but God is love. So you see, that is, that, that is something we, we, we can experience in the world if we're adding to God's word. So we need to make sure that all of God's word is the ultimate authority in our lives. Not a man's interpretation or misinterpretation, but the word of God. Okay, now we get to verses 7 through 9. And this is a wonderful portion of scripture because it teaches us about godliness with contentment. And of course, we're familiar with Paul's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I know that because we've mentioned it a number of times. Godliness with contentment is a great gain. You know, many people desiring to be rich destroyed their lives, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Plunged, it's plunged them into ruin and destruction. Why? Because the root of, well, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And so we don't want to be the kind of people that want more or need to have more. Listen, all of us can say this, but check your heart. We live in the wealthiest nation on earth for the most part. There are wealthy nations, but given the size of our nation and our lifestyle, we live here in the seat of, of, of prosperity, really, as bad as things are now. We don't know want. We really don't. And yet, so many times we give ourselves over to dissatisfaction with the things that we have. And it's really wrong. You really have to check your heart. You need to be content with whatever God has blessed you with and not seek so much more, especially not to make you feel fulfilled. So in verses 7 through 9, this is a wonderful balance. The writer says, two things I ask of you, O Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far away from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So there are two things he mentions, and he does this in this, in this proverb. We'll see... Uh, Two things, and then he'll say there are three things, yea, even four. It's a poetic way of saying there are four things. But here he just says the two things, and one is about keeping falsehood and lies far from me. That is being an honest, true person. Wow, we need more people like this in our world, right? Who want to be honest, don't want falsehood in their life at all. They want to be who they really are and live for God, but also... Individuals who are not interested in being poor, but are also not interested in being rich. Now, I know in America, it seems almost wrong to say that the American gospel would say, Lord, give me more. You know, give me more. And then we put in a little thing at the end so that I can bless others. But what we really mean is give me more because I want to be rich. That's what we really mean if we're going to be honest. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Now, only my daily bread, only the things I need. Do you pray like that? I bet you don't. Lord, only give me what I need. If you really check your heart, you'll find you probably have very few times in your life even thought that way. 
Give me just what I need. My daily bread is what I need. And the idea is, and by the way, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Give us this day our daily bread. Why? Why would he say, I don't want too much, I don't want too little? Well, because if he had too much, he knew he would disown God. And look around, we have too much in our world, too much in this culture. And and people have forgotten God. They've disowned God. But you also don't want to be poor because the poor often have to steal to survive because they get hungry and they're motivated to do the wrong thing. So this man was wise enough, even though he said, I don't really know anything, I'm not wise. He's wise enough to know too much is no good, too little is no good. Just what we need. So if you are making your life's pursuit in making money way above and beyond what you need, you need to work that out. There's something wrong there. I was hanging out at the dojo with one of my senseis. We were talking about an individual. He was sharing with me that there's an individual that his wife works, he works, he has a business, and, you know, he doesn't come to the dojo anymore. I said, oh, what happened? He says, you know, he said, Tim, how much is enough? How much is enough? This is, this is an individual, you know, not necessarily from a Christian background, saying, like, how much is enough? Here's an individual. His whole life is bent on the pursuit of money. Because enough is never enough. And I shared with him this. It's, it's a, a common story. He asked John D. Rockefeller, you know, how much is enough? And he said, just a little more. Wealthiest man that ever lived, by far. And yet, a little more. If you haven't gotten to the place in your life where you're content, God help you. I feel very badly for you. I really do. I pray for you. I can tell you unequivocally, my wife and I have reached a place a long time ago where we're very content. I don't want more. I don't look for more. I'm not interested in more. God has always provided for our needs, always, and above and beyond our needs. I don't make the pursuit of, if you will, filthy lucre, because that's what the scripture calls it, the pursuit of my heart and the pursuit of my life. But I also don't go without. Why is that? How is that possible? Because God meets all my needs. And again, above and beyond my needs. Estoy muy contento in Spanish means I'm content. I'm very content. That's the way you say I'm happy in Spanish. But the way we say we're happy in English in America is I'm rich. I really think we need to be challenged in this area. God would challenge us. It really needs to be our heart to be content with what we have. And to know that God will provide for our needs. And if you're freaking out, worried about it, you're not trusting God. Oh, you have a little faith. You're hanging out in the ship and you think you're going to sink. And you're stressing yourself out, giving yourself an ulcer, when in fact you have everything and beyond everything you need. So take that to heart. Let the Lord speak to you. I'm not trying to call anybody out or make you feel bad. But it is, a, it is so much better to be content than to look and to seek for happiness in things or wealth. And the scripture is on the side of everything I'm sharing with you. Again, check out 1 Timothy chapter 6 if you don't think that's true. But here he desired to live openly before God according to the truth, and he desired only that which God would give him, only his needs met, not his wants. He knew his wants were dangerous things. He understood the spiritual dangers of affluence and materialism. We surely don't. And he understood the material temptations of hunger and want. And that we don't know either. Thank God. Well, now he gets into the emptiness of sin. And in verses 10 through 17, we read, 
And actually, we'll just look at verse 10, because this has a few sections here. He says, do not slander a servant to his master, or he will curse you, and you will pay for it. Now, think about it. If you slander or say something that, even if it's true, but if you badmouth, you might say, a servant to his master, you're looking to get that person in trouble, right? I mean, why else would you do that, right? If you go to a restaurant and you feel that the server or the waiter is not serving you properly, and you go to the manager and you share that truth with them, uh, you might pay for it. They're the ones handling your food. But I can tell you, you don't want to get into this thing where, where you're always looking to get someone in trouble. Basically, this is a warning against making enemies, especially of those who are less fortunate than you. There's some people out there that do their very best to make enemies. Don't make enemies. Make friends, not enemies. That's why when I'm in a restaurant, the person is not necessarily giving us good service. I smile and I say, well, thank you very much. I'm even more polite. You know, I try to motivate them and inspire them to to give the service that they're expected to give. But when you start complaining and making a face and scowling and all that kind of stuff, you're not showing Christ. I don't believe you are. So anyway, be careful on that. How about this one, verses 11 through 14? There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers, those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth. Those whose eyes, whose eyes are ever so haughty and whose glass, glances are so disdainful, whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives to devour the poor from the earth, the needy from among mankind. Many poetic words there and descriptions to describe someone that really doesn't have anything nice to say. Someone who's just really arrogant and proud. Someone who just has a character that... that only thinks of themselves. For example, they dishonor their parents. They deceive themselves, right? They deceive themselves. They, they're, they're pure in their own eyes. They think they're always right. They're filled with self-importance. And they're always oppressing and abusing the poor and the needy, others. May this never describe us. He also warns against discontentment. We were talking about this before. Look at 15 and 16. This is interesting. The leech has two daughters. Give and give, <laughs> they cry. Give and give, they cry. There are three things that are never satisfied. Four that never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, land which is never satisfied with water, and fire which never says enough. Now this is very poetic language, but this is all about discontentment. Be careful, because if you become discontent in this life, which means you're never happy, you become a miserable soul, especially in this culture. I've shared this before. I went to Cuba, my first trip, my first missions trip back in 2004. And, and the thing that struck me is everyone was content. In my mind, they had no right to be content. They, they had very little of nothing at all. And yet they were content. They were more content than anyone here. How is that possible? Because contentment doesn't have to do with how much you have. It's the state of your heart. This is a real message to our culture. Now, he mentions four things, the grave. Now, the reason the grave is mentioned is because the grave doesn't spare anyone, right? It doesn't stop claiming lives each day. So that's one of the things that are mentioned that are never satisfied, that never say enough. The other is the barren womb, because it never finds its fulfillment or joy. 
Then you have dry land which never becomes fruitful or bring a harvest because it's dry. It never receives the rain. And then you have fire which, of course, will burn until it's consumed everything in its path. Why are these descriptions given to us? They're poetic descriptions of a heart that is discontented. You don't want to be like the grave, the barren womb, the dry land, or the fire where you're just never satisfied. It's never enough, never enough. And I think it's so sad that there are people working themselves to death, well into old age, really not because they need anything. And it's not because they necessarily have to work. It's just that they've reached a place where they just can't let it go. I mean, I've known people like this. Now, there's some people that work because they enjoy it. That's a different story. But, you know, people that are always like, oh, no, more, more, more. Greed, which is idolatry. It is. It's idolatry. And one of those wonderful commandments we were given in God's word in Exodus 20, right? You'll have no other gods before him. But if you have an idol in your life and it's material things, if it's money, if that's the most important thing, it's destroying your health, it's destroying your life, who's to blame? Not God. He's given you more than you need. I'm sure of it. Well, he also warns against rebellion. The eye, in verse 17, that mocks a father, that scorns obedience to a mother, will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley. It will be eaten by vultures. Very graphic, <laughs> gory description. But the idea is if you have an eye that mocks your father or, and, and you scorn obedience to your mother, that eye that does that is going to be pecked out. That is, you're going to lose because rebellion or dishonoring your parents naturally leads to poverty. In fact, Exodus chapter 20 talks about honoring your father and mother, right? Why? So that it will go well with you in the land. And so you'll be prosperous. You know, you can't be prosperous if you don't honor your parents. I mean, that's a, that seems to me to be a pretty, pretty clear and universal law. If you don't honor your parents, now why is that? You are the sum total of your parents, your parents got together. You ended up with a strand of DNA from each of them. So when you're mocking them, you're mocking yourself. To not honor your parents is to not honor yourself. And you might say, well, Pastor Tim, you don't know my parents. They're ungodly people. It doesn't matter. You can still honor them as your parents. I didn't say obey them as an adult. You may not be able to. But one thing you can do is honor them. And if you don't honor them, you're not honoring yourself. You'll never be successful. I, I believe you will ultimately become impoverished because you are mocking yourself by not honoring your parents. Poverty leads to ignominious death. It really does. Look at verse 17. The eye being pecked out by the ravens of the valley. You'll be eaten by the vultures. I mean, you're going to die in the desert. You're going to die with nothing. My grandma used to say, you're going to die alone like a dog. Not a good way to go. That's the point. Now, this is interesting. Verses 18 through 19. Changing to a little bit better topic here. There are three things that are too amazing for me. Four that, do not, that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a snake on a rock. The way of a ship on the high seas. And the way of a man with a maiden. This is very poetic language. It's pretty straightforward language, but it's, 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 it's direct. You see, he's not talking about the animal kingdom. He's actually, all of these descriptions lead to human sexuality. He's telling us that human sexuality is amazing to him, and he's doing it poetically. 
He observes the, the beauty of a soaring eagle, the graceful and fluid movement of a snake, the rocking motion of a sailing vessel, and then he compares all these wondrous motions to a couple being intimate. It's direct in very frank language. And you can see that, you know, not to get graphic with it, but he's really talking about human sexuality. He's just doing it indirectly with metaphor and analogy. He's making it clear. So he's saying human sexuality is a wonderful thing. It's a wondrous thing. But then in verse 20, he contrasts it with the perversion of human sexuality through adultery. That is, taking the gift of God, the sexuality that he's given us as a gift, and perverting it, sinning with that as opposed to living the life according to God's word. Verse 20 says it this way, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. Again, a very, very graphic description. This woman has the need to hide the truth. This woman has a need to live in self-denial. I've done nothing wrong. So here you have one description of human intimacy, human sexuality that's praised. It's a beautiful thing. And then he contrasts it with the perversity of human sexuality through adultery. And he's doing this, kind of saying it without saying it. If you, if you read into some of this a little bit. And notice someone who's involved in perverse sexual behavior, they do hide the truth, or at least until recently they used to. Nowadays, people just seem to flaunt their perversity. It's, it's, we've really reached Sodom and Gomorrah levels of sin. But there is a need to live in self-denial. There's nothing wrong. God accepts me the way I am. As it says here, I've done nothing wrong. There's people out there marching in the street. I'm not doing anything wrong. God is love. So perversion versus the blessing of human sexuality, God's way according to his word, contrasted here by this poet in beautiful language. Then we get to injustice, verses 21 through 23. We read, Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes a king, a fool who is full of food, an unloved woman who is married, and a maidservant who displaces her mistress. Now, again, all of these interesting analogies, metaphor that paint a picture, really, somewhat abstractly, indirectly, but, but speak clearly of the pains of injustice. And that's because servants are not suited to authority as they're going to be tempted to abuse their power and their influence. And this happens when someone has been uh, wronged. They get into power and they tend to be tyrants. Or or do I need to teach the lessons of the last century? Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Fidel Castro. And the list goes on and on of individuals that had humble beginnings. And then they get into power, and they're not fit to rule. Clearly, a servant who becomes a king is a bad thing. Now, that's not to say that you can't be in a position of leadership and be a servant. That's not what it's saying. A person who's a slave, a person who's a servant, elevated to the position of authority, but they don't have the character necessary to be a leader. And that's what's being said here. How about fools? Fools only become more foolish if they're satiated and granted their desires. When foolish people get what they want, they're worse off. Would you agree with that statement? And so when we say, a fool is full of food, well, now he's never going to work. 
Now, he's never going to amount to anything because you're enabling him. You're giving him everything he needs to continue to be foolish. And there are so many parents that need to realize this. I've said this before. Behind every addict, behind every fool, there's an enabler. For the person who eats too much, they're shoveling the food in their face. The person who drinks too much, they're either making excuses for them when they're drunk or even buying their alcohol for them or providing the drugs they want or looking the other way. Now, wives are to be cherished by their husbands, not unloved or ignored after being married. And when that happens, that truly is injustice as well. Any woman in that situation would agree with that statement. And how about this? Maid servants are supposed to be loyal to their mistresses, right? They're not supposed to steal their husbands. And so we read that there. It says, and a maid servant who displaces her mistress. When I was working in the corporate world, oh my goodness, mid-80s I started. There was a very common theme among executives. They would always have very attractive secretaries. And something would always manage to happen over time. They'd get divorced and marry their secretaries. And I remember, now this is going to be, I hope I don't get myself in trouble, but it's a true story. There was an individual who was a very high-level executive in the company back in the 80s, and he, uh, I, I, I wasn't there when he had his current wife as a secretary, but everyone told me, he said, if you notice, his secretary is like 60 years old. That's because the wife used to be the secretary, and she picked out his secretary. <laughs> you can figure that one out, right? So that used to happen all the time. So when you think about it, in ancient times, maidservants served their masters or their mistresses. And if, if that were to turn around, well, that's injustice. So all of these things show injustice, injustice in so many ways. It's, it's designed, this description is designed to teach us the pains of injustice, which go even beyond these examples. When we see injustice in the world, there is such pain that injustice brings to people's lives. This portion of scripture is helping us to see that truth. Then we have a few lessons from nature, verses 21, excuse me, 24. We'll look at 24 through 28. In verse 24, we read this, Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Conies, they'll be small rodents, are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks, and a lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. That's very interesting, isn't it? All of those examples from the animal kingdom are examples of wisdom and weakness. He's not really talking about biology or zoology. He's talking about examples of wisdom and weakness. Now, so much of this language is suggestive. So much of it is, is, is saying it without saying it. And you have to think about it and receive the wisdom. It's kind of like a parable. Now, what about ants? Ants are wise enough to use foresight. Then you think he really wants us to think about ants? No, he wants us to use foresight. Ants are wise enough to use foresight in their preparation for the future. Are you? Small rodents are wise enough to seek safety and protection in the rocks. Are you? 
wise enough to seek safety and protection when you need to? How about locusts? Locusts are wise enough to unite together for their common good despite no visible head. Are we? Do we unite together for the common good? Are we tearing each other apart? How about lizards? Lizards are wise enough to keep a low profile and enjoy their gracious surroundings. See, they can be caught with the hand, yet they hang out. Where do they hang out? In the best place, in the, in the, in the king's palaces. So the idea is, you know, like the lizard, be wise enough to keep a low profile. Don't bring too much attention to yourself. Enjoy what you have. Oh, by the way, if you go into the city on the subway platform and you take out your wallet and start thumbing through your $100 bills, probably not a good idea, right? Okay. Wisdom would say otherwise, right? So all of these are examples from animals that are meant to be applied to us. We're supposed to take these teachings and apply them to our hearts. Now we have examples of foolish self-confidence that drives us from God. Those examples that we just looked at were examples of wisdom and weakness that point us to God. But these examples, these examples that we're about to read, drive us from God, or they're examples of foolish self-confidence that drives us from God. Notice self-confidence is really weakness, and weakness is really wisdom. We know the principle of God resisting the proud but exalting the humble. Amen? Amen? So here we go, verses 29 through 31. There are three things that are stately in their stride, four that move with stately bearing. A lion, mighty among beasts, who retreats before nothing. A strutting rooster, a he-goat, and a king with his army around him. Now, he's just painted this very interesting picture, and a lot of pride in every one of those examples, right? I mean, in fact, what do they call a group of lions? A pride. There's a lot of pride. The lion, mighty among beasts. He treats before nothing, not afraid of anyone or anything. The strutting rooster walks around the barnyard as if he owns the place. A he-goat and a king with his army around him. The idea is a very, very proud presentation. Now, lions rely on their impressive strength and their size. Roosters rely on their impressive feathers and their gait, the way they strut. He-goats rely on their horns and their ability to charge and to climb. And the kings rely on the confidence and support of others, like their army. But all of these are examples of pride versus the examples we looked at before, which were weakness. But there was wisdom in the weakness, and there's foolishness in the pride. And so this whole section teaches us to be wise, not to be foolish. Finally, in verse 32, here's a warning not to cause trouble. If you are known as a troublemaker and not a peacemaker, can I say it this way? Shame on you. You should never be known as a troublemaker. But there are people that, boy, they just love to make trouble. And yet the Bible tells us, blessed are the peacemakers, right? They shall see God. who we called the sons of God. So let's understand something. If you're making trouble, if everywhere you go you cause division and trouble, you're no better than a gossip. You know, you're really, you're really working for the wrong team. You're working for the enemy. And there are people that join churches, and from the minute they get there, they bring nothing but division and problems. And uh, I thank God that we're not dealing with any of those things, and we haven't for a long time, and very infrequently over the years. But there's nothing worse than having a wonderful church family, and someone comes in, and they just they start trouble. I mean, we're not afraid to show those kinds of people the door. That's probably why they're not here. 
<laughs> but interesting, a warning not to cause trouble. Here, here's what we got. In, in verse 32. If you have played the fool and exalted yourself, there's that reoccurring theme, or if you have planned evil, clap your hand over your mouth, or shut your mouth. <laughs> clap your hand over your mouth. For as churning the milk produces butter, and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. Very graphic descriptions, right? I remember when I was a kid, I don't remember when or how, I just remember that maybe it was in school, I don't even know if it was at home. I didn't know that, you know, if you churn milk, you could actually produce butter. Now, the milk has to have cream, it can't be like the milk we have today, but like, if you did, you would actually get butter. That's how you get butter, churning milk. And uh, so th- what's the idea? Stirring, stirring it up, right? And then you have, you know, twisting the nose, <laughs> causing problems. Finally, stirring up anger produces strife. So watch the pride in your heart, the words of your mouth and your wicked thoughts. These are the examples of the consequences of starting trouble with others. So I love this. This is one of my favorite chapters in the book of Proverbs because it really is so practical and poetic. Beautiful language. Go back over it this week, if you would, and just let the Lord speak to you through the language, the beauty of the language, but, but the power of the language. It's God's word teaching us what's important, what's right. Humility and the fear of the Lord. Godliness with contentment. The emptiness of sin. The wonder of human sexuality and the perversion of human sexuality apart from God and his word. The pains of injustice, many lessons from nature, and a warning not to cause trouble. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this chapter. Thank you for the beauty of these words, the poetry, but the power as well. May you speak to our hearts. May you apply them to our hearts. And may we remember to live our lives as your son, who you sent to earth to die on the cross for our sins. That we would remember that he not only died on the cross, but he rose again. He ever lives to make intercession on our behalf and has promised to come again to judge the living and the dead. May we live circumspectly in submission to you and your word, that we would know for certain that you're pleased with our lives because we've humbly approached you and asked you for help in our time of need. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.